again, I wasn't even thinking about talking about this, but was is spiritual mothers and fathers. And my hope is that our church can be a place where we can be filled with spiritual mothers and fathers, where we band together as a tribe to take care of one another, to lead each other to Christ, to show each other what it looks like to live in love and compassion and grace. And I hope that for all of us, especially as we bring in so many young ones to our church. If you don't know, last summer we had, just the summer alone, we had uh, 11 babies, uh, and then several more since then. And so uh, spiritual mothers and, and fathers, we, you, you're needed. You're needed to step up in the, at this church, uh, in your community, uh, and really for the kingdom of God. And so uh, for those of you that are already doing that, thank you. Thank you for being uh, someone who, who invests in others. Thank you for that. This church can be a place for everyone, all walks of life, uh, in all generations. And, and so with that said, as we were thinking about the sermon, not just at Bethany and West Seattle, but all of Bethany, what we've decided to do was kind of stick with the plan. Uh, and, and though it is a bit fitting because the uh, sermon series we've been on is called uh, God's Chosen, as we study different women uh, of the Bible, uh, but uh, it's not going to be this unique or set-aside, one-off kind of sermon uh, for Mother's Day. We're going to stick with the plan, uh, and today we look into the life of uh, what the Bible deems as just the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. Uh, and last week, we talked about Mary Magdalene, and I made sure that we differentiated between uh, Luke chapter 8, which is Mary Magdalene, and Luke chapter 7, which talks about, uh, no, uh, she doesn't have a name, uh, it's just titled The Sinful Woman, are not the same people. Uh, and so uh, the public reading comes from Luke chapter 7. Uh, it'll be on the screen here, verse 36 to 38. Let me read the word of God uh, for you. And it says this, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, Having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment, uh, or in other translations, perfume. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and, to, and dried them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them uh, with the, the perfume, with the ointment. Let's learn more about it. Let's pray before we begin. God, thank you so much. For the mothers, thank you to those that have brought life into this world, that, that are laughing, that are um, grieving, that are sad. We pray for uh, the women that have just expectations, just gone uh, array of, of sideways. And so, God, we ask you to enter into, into their lives, and, and not just the women, but families, and individuals, God, where this day is, again, joyful, but yet also uh, a day of lament. And so, God, may this place be a place where we can hold all of that together. God, be with us as we, as we look into uh, this woman we find in Luke chapter 7. May we learn from her. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, oftentimes I share this story, uh, or several stories, of when I was a chaplain at a hospital. It was a profound time in my life, and it was a profound experience that I had the joy of being a part of. 
Uh, and as my job as a chaplain in a hospital was that I was called uh, during difficult times with patients, with their families, during deaths, when people were literally on their deathbed, uh, where they needed counsel, or where they needed prayer, or they just needed someone to talk to, I would be called and to sit by them at their bedside. And part of my job also was to respond to a particular call or a code. And when this code was uh, on over the speakers, uh, I forgot what color code this was, but it was a code where everybody in multiple fields, whether you were a chaplain, a, a doctor, or a nurse, a social worker, they all had to come to that room. And it was typically in a trauma room, in an ER room, uh, where there was significant trauma. And, and I remember this one day where I was paged and, and the chaplain was needed, and it was this code where a woman uh, fell off a roof of a house, and she was seriously injured, brought into the, to the ER, uh, and the, once the code came, we all ran over uh, to see what was needed. It was just protocol. We had to run over uh, to see what was happening and to talk to whoever we needed to talk to, to console who we needed to console. And I remember as she was brought in, in the stretcher, she was moved over to the bed, uh, and, and the doctor, the ER doctor, got a pair of shears and just cut open her shirt uh, and started working on her, because she had broken bones and needed x-rays, and they were doing all these things. And, and, and to all the physicians, it was like, it's just what you do. Someone was in pain, someone was in trouble, they needed help, uh, and though she was conscious, she didn't resist, she didn't, uh, she didn't. She didn't feel any shame or embarrassment or any guilt or, or whatever it is. She was just saying, I am hurt and I need help. And, and because I wasn't a doctor, I wasn't a surgeon, I, I was a chaplain, I'm not used to seeing all of that. Uh, and it was like, okay, this is happening. It's okay. I need to be here and be a professional to pray and to be with whoever needs a chaplain by their side. But I remember thinking after that scene was over and I was walking away to my office, I remember thinking, man, here's this woman and really not just one, but anyone that comes to the ER in pain, understands they're broken, understands they're, you know, they need help. The doctors also understand this. They come to the room and they do whatever it takes for them to be healed, for them to receive the help that they need, even if they have to do something as uncomfortable, which to them isn't as uncomfortable as it seems, cut open shirt or clothing or whatever it is just to get help. And I remember thinking, well, she wasn't embarrassed. I mean, she fell off a roof and, and broke in multiple bones and head trauma and all those things, uh, and she was just receiving help. She wasn't feeling any shame. She wasn't feeling uh, any hesitation, and nor were the doctors and physicians and the nurses. They were actually doing all they could to work and help this patient. And, and what we, well, well, really what I saw, so fascinating, so profound, remembering this story, is the level of her brokenness that led her to be abandoned in order for her to receive help. And I look at that physical pain, that physical experience into Luke chapter 7, where this woman, again, unnamed, she understands her brokenness, understands the painful life that she's lived. We don't actually know what her sin is and why she uh, is deemed as the sinful woman, though there's clues that we'll see uh, in, a, in a little bit. What we understand is she understood her brokenness. And she went into the house of the Pharisees, religious people, people that think they have it all together, that are healthy, 
that, that have nothing wrong in life. This woman, this sinful woman, probably a woman that was shunned or outcasted because of the sin that uh, she may have uh, committed, comes into this house of clean, quote-unquote, religious people and says, Jesus, I need you, I'm broken. And, and as I read this, and, uh, and go through the story, I ask myself this question every single day. And I ask us as a church, when was the last time, especially for those of you who claim to be a follow, follower of Jesus, when was the last time you, when was the last time myself, come to the foot of the cross, the feet of Jesus, and say, Jesus, I am broken, and I need you. Because when we look at the story of uh, Luke chapter 7, oftentimes we can identify with someone in there. Either we can identify with this woman who says, Jesus, I'm broken. I need you. I beg you. I need healing. I need transformation. I need forgiveness. Jesus, I want to be with you. And on the other side of that, there's uh, the Pharisees, Simon's house. Where even one of the response is, doesn't Jesus know who this woman is? You know, I can just see them in their just kind of pious attitude, self-righteous demeanor, just sitting back saying, what are you, Jesus, what are you doing? People that haven't acknowledged their own stuff, just sitting there judging others. And oftentimes in this story, we can actually identify with one or the other. And it actually depends and is contingent upon how you answer the question, have you experienced or do you understand that we are broken people? Because the question is, do you know that you're broken? Do I know that I'm broken? And I humbly submit to you that we all are. All of us. And this woman in Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 7 understood her brokenness. And what we find in her, in her acknowledging her brokenness, is that brokenness can be a birthplace for beauty. Brokenness can be a birthplace for beauty. And what's most beautiful about this story is what we learn. And what we learn is this. Brokenness oftentimes becomes the entry point to intimacy with Christ. Brokenness oftentimes becomes the entry point to the intimacy with Christ. And this woman in Luke chapter 7 experienced this firsthand. That she acknowledged her brokenness. And it's through that brokenness that initiated intimacy with Jesus. And so again, I ask you, are you broken? Do you come here with brokenness? The answer for all of us, including myself, especially myself, is yes. We're all in need of a Savior. All of us, each and every one of us. And whether you know this or not, uh, whether you know that you're searching for a Savior or not, we are. Whether you call this Savior Jesus or some other deity, maybe you call this Savior money or status or, or maybe yourself or addiction or whatever it is, we're all searching for a Savior. That's not the question. The question is, who, who is that? Who is the one that you're seeking to be saved from, with? See, a lot of us, we need 
to be saved. And I don't mean this in a, in a religious, in an over-hyper-spiritual way, but all of us, we're looking for a Savior because we understand our need to be saved from brokenness. And, and maybe this brokenness is uh, simply uh, because of the decisions that we've made that has caused brokenness in our lives. Many of us, that is the truth. Well, and for many of us, brokenness comes from just because of the cards that we were dealt with. Brokenness can be loneliness. Have you ever felt lonely? That's brokenness. Have you ever felt anger? That's brokenness. Anxiety? Have you experienced addiction of some sort? Have you experienced a loss of relationship, a loved one, a loss of a dream? Do you experience greed and selfishness? That's all brokenness. And what I would humbly submit to you is that we've all experienced a form of brokenness one way or another. Maybe you come in here and you're sitting in the pews and you're experiencing that brokenness right now. Maybe you experienced this in the past. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but all of us, we will experience it in the future. The question is, will you acknowledge it? And the moment that you acknowledge your brokenness and fully submit to it, we'll see, as Luke chapter 7, is that that becomes an entry point into intimacy with Jesus. Though there was all this religious people, people that claimed to have a relationship with God, people that claimed to love God, people that claimed to obey all the laws, out of everyone in the room, Jesus said, the one that will be saved, that will be healed because of her faith, is not all you religious people that have it all together or think you do, it's this sinful woman who came and couldn't stop greeting me and kissing my feet and anointing me with expensive perfume. And so what we'll learn uh, is three things, is that Christ runs to you. I know that sounds so elementary, but, I'm, but, but I want to unpack that for you, that Christ runs to you. That confession sustains you and when confession sustains you judgment leaves you Jesus runs to you confession sustains you and judgment leaves you and what I want to do is just for a moment just unpack again Luke chapter 7 uh, this woman and what's happening here's this woman going break kind of just barging into this Pharisee's house where typically they would have important meetings of some sort and where only the upper echelon people can hang out and eat together. And here's this woman anointing his feet with perfume and kissing them. And, and what we have to understand is that feet, just like today, especially back then when a lot of times people would walk around bare feet, feet were considered dirty. <clears throat> they were considered unclean. And, and the dirtiest part of the body, the feet. And here's this woman uh, bowing down and not only touching the feet, but kissing the feet, being that close to the feet or so close that when she cries on it, her tears hits the, her feet and, and she wipes it with, with her hair. There's a sense of humility there. Coming, literally coming before and bowing down at the feet of Jesus. Which people would, wouldn't dare to do at that time in the first century. I'm not going to kiss your feet. Slaves did that to their masters. This side of the uh, social economic group, the poor would do that to the rich. 
The servants would do that to the kings. But peers would never do that. And so the Pharisees are sitting there thinking, what are you doing? And Jesus said, she is doing the right thing. She is, is exemplifying humility. And not only does this woman kiss the feet and anoint the feet of Jesus, but it says that she uh, wipes his feet with her hair. And what we have to understand is that this was a very intimate act. Oftentimes, women would cover their hair, especially in the first century uh, Palestine. Women would cover, literally cover their hair. And the only time that women would show their hair uh, is to their husbands. It was a very intimate act to let her hair down, expose her hair, and not only expose her hair and show her hair, but use that hair to wipe Jesus' feet. So not only was there an element of humility, but there was an element of intimacy. And when the Bible in Luke says that she was a sinner uh, who was touching him, it was uh, this Greek word, haptomai. Haptomai had a very sensual uh, connotation to it. And so when the Pharisees use this word, haptomai, says, doesn't, doesn't Jesus know that this woman is haptomai, is touching his feet? The way that she's, doesn't Jesus know the woman that is touching him? And when the Pharisees accuse her of touching him, what they're doing is accusing her of touching him in a very inappropriate way, in a very sensual or sexual way, because the assumption is that that's her background, that's her history. And so uh, many scholars and most theologians would agree uh, that although it didn't say exactly what her sin was or is, uh, but the assumption that she was probably a prostitute is probably true. Because of the way that the Pharisees are interacting with her and viewing her and the words that they were using. And so taking that into consideration, here comes what we would suppose as a prostitute coming to a Pharisee's house, the religious people, the clean people, bowing at Jesus' feet. And the ironic part was it's her that becomes praised. And it's the religious people that become indicted. That's the way of the kingdom. And Jesus receives her with open arms, with open hearts. Christ pursues you. Christ runs to you. And this is so significant that Jesus doesn't wait till you have it all figured out. Jesus says yes to you. Jesus says, I love you and I receive you and I embrace you. Here comes this woman full of sin, and Jesus doesn't sit back and say, well, you know what, you have to have a list and says, check, you have to have all this figured out before you can come to me. Jesus says, I receive you and I love you just as you are. And of course, time and time again, we see that, yes, Jesus says, I love you and I receive you and I heal you and transform you. Go live a different life, a life that's transformed, a life that has changed. And I love a few chapters later, Luke, the same writer in 15, uh, writes this story uh, of what we would deem as the prodigal son. And I love this part of the prodigal son in chapter 15, verse 20, uh, after the son essentially says, Dad, I want you dead. When, when a son says, hey, when am I going to get my inheritance? That, I, in the, especially in the first century, means, Dad, when are you going to die? 
And, and with compassion and with grace, the father says, you know what? I'll give you your inheritance. Because he was like, can I have it right now? Because I want you dead. Can I have that inheritance? And, and the dad says, you know what? I will give you what you asked for. And, and he runs away. And, and, and I, this isn't the sermon on the prodigal son. But make a long story short, uh, spends it foolishly, foolish, foolishly and, and makes bad decisions, runs out of money, and says, you know what? I have a bright idea. I'm out of money. I have nothing to do. Uh, I have made bad decisions, bad choices. My life's in ruin. I'm going to go back to my father's house. And he says, at the very least, my dad is going to accept me, maybe not as a son, because I kind of lost that privilege. Uh, He's thinking, I'm going to go, and and my dad is going to receive me as, as a servant. But at least being a dad's servant at the house is better than the life that I'm living now. And and so he goes to his father, and it says this in in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And this is the the most beautiful and the most powerful part. The father, it says that, it says, he ran to his son threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I love this story because I can just imagine it. I can even imagine being in his shoes where I'm a son, and I've made bad decisions, believe it or not. I've made some bad decisions in my life. And just imagining myself and imagining just the son running to the father, saying, you know what, I'm going to be a servant to my father. I'm going to be below in his household. And yet the story intentionally points out that the son wasn't finished running to the dad. The dad actually ran towards him. And that was total countercultural to this society and this culture. Kings never ran to the servants. Fathers never ran to their son. They would wait at their throne or where they're at and wait till the servant or their son or whoever it is to run completely to them. And so this story to those that were reading in this context through the first century lens understood how radical and how huge of a deal this was. Was that in this story, the father humbly comes off his throne and runs to The son, heart abandoned. Not a checklist for the son. Not a here's what you need to do to get right. Not a here, you're right, you're going to be my servant, you're going to be under me. No guilt trip of here's all the things you've done wrong. Nothing, none of that. The father simply runs and opens up his arms. And the story of this arm is that he opens up his arms to embrace him. And when we see this physical form of opening up the arms, it's an invitation as well. I'm not going to grab you and drag you back to my house. As a matter of fact, in this story, the father says, you know what? This, is, this breaks my heart, but I'll give you what you wish for. Here's your inheritance. And so he opens up his arms as an invitation. When someone does this to embrace you, you have to receive that if you want to and embrace back. It's a decision that you have to make. And this father runs. And this is a, this is a story, it's a parable of the love that Jesus has for each and every one of us. Jesus runs 
to meet with you and invites you to walk alongside him and follow him to experience life, not just any life, but, but life in its abundance. Life that where you experience true shalom, healing, transformation, joy. And the beautiful thing is you don't have to have it all figured out. Christ is running to you, pursuing you. And we have this misconception oftentimes, well, I'm not good enough to go to church. I'm not, uh, I've made some bad decisions. You know, God doesn't love me or God can't receive me. And in Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 15, we see all over the scriptures that that simply isn't true. That's a lie that we've believed in. And it ruins our relationship, not only with God, but with others. And, and I see an analogy of this all the time. I, you know, like, uh, for fun and what I enjoy, for passion is fitness. And a and, uh, couple evenings a, a week, I do training. I, I coach at a CrossFit gym. Uh, and I come across people all the time when I talk about working out and exercising. People would say, oh, man, I, I would go to the gym. You know, I would go if I was in better shape. Like, oh, interesting. Or, or, you know, like, oh, if I was healthier, if I was stronger, if I had more, if I was more, if my body was more conditioned, uh, I'll wait. I'll wait till that happens, and then I'll go to the gym, and then I'll start exercising. And, and to me, that seems almost counterintuitive because the purpose of the gym exists so you can get healthy, so you can get fit, so you can exercise, so you can't be more conditioned or you get stronger, whatever it is. That is the place th- that happens. You don't. Do that first, get all, you know, stronger and faster, whatever it is, and then you show up to the gym, although that's the misconception, I would say that's exactly why you need to show up. And, and that's the invitation that, that Christ has for all of us, is that you don't have to have it all figured out. As a matter of fact, don't have it figured out. Come to me, and then we'll go from there. That's the grace and compassion that God has for us. That Jesus doesn't wait till we have it all figured out, till we have everything put together. Somehow we've been conditioned that we have to look a certain way. Our society, our culture, our world has conditioned us. You know, and I think that social media has a lot of joys and a lot of benefits, but it has a lot of danger as well. That it forces us to to put up this front that everything is good and everything is all right and everything is put together and everything is perfect. It becomes kind of a highlight reel of our life. And what Jesus is saying is put that down. Put it down. And come to me just as you are. Just as you are. And I will receive you. And as a matter of fact, I will run to you with open arms. So come to me. Come to my feet. Heart abandoned. Just like this woman. Just like this prodigal son. And for many of us, that, that invitation is today. Do you want to make a decision today to follow Jesus for the first time? Because you acknowledge that everything else you've tried, every God that you've pursued, whether it's yourself, whether it's money, whether it's addiction, drug, whatever, greed, whatever it is, it just simply has not been working. If you acknowledge that, maybe we're at a point where we say, you know what, this Jesus thing, maybe, maybe I want to give this Jesus thing a try. That connect card, will you write that down? We want, we want to connect with you. We want to pray for you. And, or maybe this is going to be your first time making this decision for Jesus, saying, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Maybe it's your second time. 
Maybe it's your third time. Maybe it's your hundredth time. But today is the day that Jesus says, come to me all who are weary, for I will give you rest. When we walk towards Jesus saying, you know what, this life, whatever I've been doing has not been working. Jesus, I want to try this out. Jesus runs after you with open arms. Doesn't say, well, here's a list of things you need to have all together. Here's all the things that you've done wrong. No, Jesus says, just come to me. And as you come to me, I will also run to you. Christ runs to you. And secondly, what we'll find through the story is that confession sustains you. It says Christ runs to us as we run back and as we meet him, we have to acknowledge our brokenness. Because what we acknowledge about our brokenness is that uh, transformation is on the other side of it. Transformation and healing and joy and hope is on the other side of brokenness. And so many of us, we stop at the brokenness part. We give up. When we uh, have to understand is that transformation happens at the other side of brokenness. In verse 40, he says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have to, to tell you something. And the Pharisee says, tell me, teacher. And Jesus says, two people, and he says, you know, let me tell you a story. Two people owed money to a certain land lender, a money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which, now which do you think, will, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. And Jesus says, you judge correctly. The more comfortable you get with your brokenness, the more you own your brokenness, the more we name and confess our brokenness, really the easier it becomes to receive healing. And the question is, and the question that Luke chapter 7 poses, have you owned your brokenness? Not have you owned it, not only have you owned it, but have you confessed it? There's something so sacred, there's something so divine about this idea of confession. The church has been doing it for centuries and I invite you to practice, invite myself to practice this, this sacrament of confession. Confessing our brokenness. Confessing it to God first. And I love what Pope Francis says. He says, confession is the sacrament of the tenderness of God. Confession is the sacrament of the tenderness of God. It's God's way of embracing us. Confession is God's way of embracing us. There's something so sacred and divine about confessing our brokenness, our sin, our hurt, our anger to God. Because confession becomes a sacrament of the tenderness of God, and it's God's way of embracing us. Essentially what happens is that confession becomes an acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. Confession becomes an acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. So experience his sacredness, divine mystery of confession to God. And, and secondly, confessing to others. Confess to others brokenness 
that's hidden inside can rot our souls. We've all experienced that. We've all experienced that the things that we hide, the secrets that we run from, that we don't expose, can rot our souls. But on the other side of that is true brokenness uh, that's, that's released can be the beginning of healing and freedom. You see, it works in both ways. When we confess, not only to God, but to others, we receive a sense of freedom. That we no longer have to just hold on to this. No longer does this have a yoke on us. But we experience a freedom that we receive. And on the other side is that as we confess, we also give other people, people around us, the permission to also receive that same freedom and healing. See, what was once deemed as shame that we can't expose, that we can't share, that we can't confess, once it's out in the open and confessed, what, what, what was once deemed as shame mysteriously transforms into a gift. That's the sacredness and the divine mystery of confession. One of my favorite theologians and, and writers, Henry Nouwen, says that woundedness, we can use the word brokenness, becomes the greatest teacher. Becomes the greatest teacher. And so one of the practical steps is, are you in a small group? We have those. Do you have people that you can do life with? You need those. Do you have a mentor? Do you have a spiritual father? Do you have a spiritual mother? You need them. The Bible all over makes it so clear the practicality of meeting with people to do life with one another, to confess with one another, because with that confession comes freedom and becomes a gift to others. But in order for us to confess, we have to acknowledge that we are broken and know that even in our brokenness that Christ pursues you no matter what, just like this woman in Luke chapter 7. Christ pursues you. Confession then sustains you. And lastly and quickly we'll look at that judgment then leaves you. I love this part. Confession becomes the antidote to judgment. As we confess, it becomes the antidote to judgment. I love when this woman comes and really with her hair down, vulnerability, nakedness in her soul. In her soul. And, and what we see on the other side is people judging her, saying, does Jesus even know who she is? So much judgment and self-righteousness. And it's interesting, again, it's, it's the women that is praised. It's, and we see this interesting phenomenon between the two groups that what we see is that the slower we get to acknowledging our brokenness. This is important. The slower we get to acknowledging our brokenness, the quicker we get to judgmentalism. I don't know if that's a word. The slower we get to acknowledging our brokenness, the quicker we get to judgmentalism. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you don't believe you're truly broken, you tend to look down on those who confess that they actually are. And for the sake of time, I won't go into this, but I've been doing a lot of work on what we call the Enneagram. It's kind of a typology test, kind of, you know, 
puts the words into kind of uh, your behavior, your action, your thoughts, your feelings, that you're healthiest, that you're unhealthiest. And, and I've come to realize, uh, and sometimes shamefully, that uh, I'm an eight. And so some of us, that means nothing. Uh, but the title for the eight is the, the challenger. And oftentimes a challenger is self-righteous at the unhealthiest, becomes, cha- becomes challenging, becomes prideful, uh, becomes competitive, oftentimes hard to work with. Uh, and all of that can oftentimes describes me. And, and what, I, what, what I've also learned and put into words is that it actually doesn't come from a place of security, which oftentimes people can uh, see as a misconception. It doesn't come from a place of security. The, exactly the exact opposite. I'm afraid, as an eight or as myself, I'm afraid or don't want to deal with my own mess. It's easier to point out the mess of others. It makes sense. It makes sense that as we uh, avoid our own brokenness, as we deny our own sinfulness, as we can't confess the things that are messed up in our lives and the way we act and the way we love, the quicker then we become to judgmentalism. When we look down on others, it's easier. Don't, mess, don't work on our own selves. Why would you do that? That's hard. It's much easier when we put a blind eye to ourselves and judge the lives of others. And I love this quote. It's someone, I don't know who says it, but it says, it's funny how we get angry. It's funny how we become judgmental. It's funny how we look down on somebody else for sinning differently than us. It's funny how we look down on others for sinning differently than how we sin ourselves. And we get to the story in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, have you looked at your own eye? What's in your own eye? Because if you don't, you're going to have trouble relating with others, with confessing, with seeing your own brokenness. I mean, you're so quick in the story of Matthew chapter 7, you're so quick to judge others, to, to, to judge them for the little, the little thing in their eye, a speck of dust in their eye, when in your eye you have a huge plank. And oftentimes that's us. And many of us, we've oddly experienced this dichotomy. This dichotomy where it says confession drives out judgment. When we come to grips with our own story, we can more easily embrace and have compassion for the stories of others. No matter how messy those stories are. And I always say, show me a person who is hyper-judgmental. And I'll show you a person who has not dealt with their stuff, myself included. Our inability to acknowledge our brokenness, and not only acknowledge our brokenness, but confess it, actually ends up being a glass ceiling to the level of intimacy we can experience with God and really with others. And as I invite the band up in a time of response, I want to remind you of this, that brokenness is oftentimes an entry point to intimacy with Christ. It's not a deficit. It's not a deal breaker. It's not moving backwards. And oftentimes we believe in this lie that it is. 
But oftentimes the opposite is true, that the brokenness in our lives, whatever that brokenness might be, can become an entry point for beauty. What we have to do is come to the altar, come to the feet of Jesus, hard abandoned, like this woman in Luke chapter 7, like somebody going into the emergency emergency room, not caring what's around, not caring what's happening, just saying, Jesus, all I know is one thing, that one thing is that I need you. And everything changes. Jesus will run to you. Jesus will run to you. And as we do that, may we as a community confess. And maybe the time of response is when we, we have to confess to God, God, here are the ways that I'm, I'm broken. Not because, God, you don't know, because God knows. It's me saying and confessing, I need a savior. God, you're God and I'm not. And see how that changes our own hearts. Because it becomes becomes an antidote to self-righteousness like we see in Luke chapter 7. And being judgmental. But also receiving people's stories and having compassion as Jesus did. God, thank you for this story. We thank you that we can learn from this woman what it looks like to have our hearts abandoned for us to come to the feet of the altar, pushing our ego and our pride aside, knowing that one thing is true, that as we pursue you, you run after us with open arms, no matter what, no matter what we've done, with no prerequisites. And we thank you for that. May we confess that find people to do life with that can understand that and may our stories become a gift to others we thank you in your name we pray amen